is a podcast for Functional Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. Hello everyone, I'm delighted to welcome Nikki Mitchell today to the podcast. Nikki is an Associate Professor at the University of Western Australia and Deputy Director at the UWA Oceans Institute. Her current focus and that of her research group is to understand the capacity of threatened vertebrates to adapt to rapid environmental change and to develop mechanistic models and decision tools that can inform conservation initiatives such as assisted colonization. Today we will be discussing Nikki's recently published paper in Functional Ecology. It is titled, Activity of a Freshwater Turtle Varies Across a Latitudinal Gradient, Implications for the Success of Assisted Colonization. Hello Nikki, how are you today? Hi, Frank. I'm well, thanks. Good. I think we'll kick off with some introductions. So we always like to ask people, um, you know, who you are, where you're from, and what your research interests are. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm from Hobart in Tasmania, and uh, that's where I did my first degree in zoology. But I've been here in Western Australia for about 20 years. Um, Worked in New Zealand and other parts of Australia as well. But I guess broadly now I have... um, a focus on, as you suggested, really working on reptiles and amphibians that are vulnerable to climate change. In this part of the world, we've got a drying climate as well as a warming climate, so I focus on both those things. Um, And I work across groups as broad as sea turtles to terrestrial frogs, freshwater turtles, and also some of my group work on mammals as well. I also do a bit of work for the Australian government. I'm also um, involved in threatened species uh, list decisions for the, the federal government and the minister. So I've sort of, yeah, quite broadly now work across conservation biology and, and physiological ecology. Remarkable. So just to pull it back, growing up in Hobart, that's amazing. I mean, ecologically, extremely unique, I imagine. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I don't think a lot of our listeners might know what it's like. Yeah, I grew up in a, a sort of a, an acre block on a hillside that had just been developed. So it was full of animals at the time I, I was a kid and I spent my life outdoors. I had a very, um, my parents weren't very keen on me watching television unless it was David Attenborough or um, we had an Australian chap called Harry Butler in the wild who used to sort of um, go around Australia lifting rocks and finding interesting things under it. So I more or less modeled his behavior in my own backyard and spent a lot of time um, harassing skinks and frogs that were in my neighbor's um, pond and yeah so I really sort of grew up loving getting my hands on animals and studying them firsthand and drawing them and um, I more or less wanted to be a zoologist from about 10 years old and I haven't really diverted from that plan but yeah Hobart was a great place to actually do my first degree so I did I did have the wonderful experience of you know a third year zoology camp handling things like Tasmanian devils which actually are quite easy to handle you'd be surprised um but yeah so it was it was an idyllic um place to start a zoology career i think so perhaps you could talk a little bit about i know you mentioned from the age of 10 and you know that your parents helped with kind of imbuing you with and inspiring you to do this it certainly encouraged me to get outside yes yeah. so <laughs> yeah. was that a byproduct of being told to go outside or are they also quite interested in the whole natural process ecosystem kind of stuff no, I think it was an, a core trait of my own. Uh, my parents are not biologists. I've got an engineer and a, a librarian <laughs> as my as my parents. So, <laughs> no, I think it was just just something I've um, always been attracted to, and had the opportunity because yeah, it was it was an interesting um, 
it was an interesting garden with things to find at the time. It probably wouldn't be very interesting to look at it now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it's become much more urbanised. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, before we dig into the nitty gritty of what you and your um, team do, um, perhaps we could talk a little bit about what your favourite study organism is. Maybe what younger Nikki's favourite mm. sort of animal or plant or study system or whatever you want to call it was. Oh, that's very hard, actually. I've, I've really played with lots of frogs, lots of species that I'm pretty interested in. My first um, really deep dive into studying a species was a called, it's called the moss frog and it lived in the mountains of the southwest of Tasmania. It was just discovered in 1993, wow. one year before I was looking for my first honours project. So I was, I was the lucky person who got to really do the first just sort of natural history of the study of that species. And it turned out to have the largest eggs in the world, the smallest clutches, the longest lifespan, breeds under snow in moss, mossy sites that provide it with lots of oxygen. So, I, yeah, I did that. I also continued to work on that species for, as a PhD student as well. But um, I'm also very fond of a frog in West Australia called the turtle frog, which is a very peculiar underground species. Looks very strange, as you can guess from its name. <laughs> But its, its sex life is remarkable. It's actually has, it does courtship about five months before it mates. And that's unheard of in the amphibian world. They nearly always synchronize those two behaviors. So that's, that's I think, one of my favorite projects that I sort of still do in my spare time. Um, otherwise, I tend to live vicariously through my, my, my students who have get their hands on lots of interesting things, including mammals as well. Oh, amazing. Right. Well, um, I think... The next thing I'd like to ask you is perhaps you could discuss some advice um, or talk a little bit about your experience to getting to where you are now. Um, Advice for other young budding scientists, I suppose. I didn't expect that question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's where I am now is I'm pretty happy where I am now because I'm finding that my academic training in physiological ecology has become exactly what I need now to anticipate the impact of climate change on these animals I'm, I care about. So, you know, I think at the time in the late 90s when I did a PhD, physiological ecology and comparative physiology was a bit of a dying discipline and it still is in some ways. Um, it was huge in the 1960s. Everybody got their hands on animals and put them in chambers and measured metabolic rates and those sorts of fundamental things. And those sorts of that sort of information now is critical to my modelling work. So... I'm very glad that was my background, but I've really become very much more applied in what I do now. And because I've had a um, a role for about eight years advising government on threatened species, I'm, I guess, increasingly aware of how severe the challenges are we have in Australia and trying to sort of now bring my... I'm trying to sort of do innovative work that kind of is a bit a bit ahead of the game, perhaps where Australia is thinking on what it, how it might need to respond to climate change. So I'm, I'm kind of lucky to have my ear to the ground about perhaps how our governments are thinking about addressing some of our big problems as well as having some of the ideas about how to actually do some sort of experimental work and some actual manipulations of species in the wild to see if we can help. Amazing. So um, just to talk a little bit before we get into the paper and the project about how I didn't really give you any advice sorry that wasn't very good answer <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying go and do physiology at university <laughs> if you can find a good professor because there are not so many left in Australia in that discipline but it's really important to understand how animals work and how 
how they respond to temperature and water. Yeah, I think that's that's actually brings me on to what I was going to ask um, about the effects of climate change in Australia. Um, perhaps you could talk talk on what that looks like for the species that you work with, and you know the types of challenges that Australia is staring down the barrel of. So the species I work on, the one we're discussing today, is the Western Swamp turtle or tortoise I'll, I'll probably say both those words but they don't they, they're the same mm-hmm. thing uh this was an this was a believed to be extinct um it was only known from a specimen sent to a museum in vienna um or in the 1800s and it was described in 1903 and, and no one had seen it in west australia we didn't know where it was from but in the 1950s um two teenage boys found a couple and took them to a wildlife show wow. and someone recognized this was something different to the we only have one other freshwater turtle in the same region, which has got a long neck. This one's got a short neck. So um, so basically um, it was rediscovered, which was fabulous news, but by the time it was rediscovered, its habitat was almost gone. It occupies the seasonal swamps that dry in the summer and they're good agricultural land probably in that time of year. So a lot of these swamps were drained and cleared well before we knew there was a threatened species there. So by the time it was rediscovered, there's just a couple of little fragments of, of wetlands left and unfortunately right on the edge of, of Perth, the capital city of West Australia, which has got about 2.1 million people and growing. So there's not a lot, we, we just don't know where else it might have been. There's anecdotal reports of where it might have been in the past, but really it seems to have a very naturally restricted range to these seasonal clay pan swamps. And the, our issue in Western Australia is we've had a drying climate since about the 1970s. There's a really clear signal of rainfall change around then and another step change in 2000 and another step change again in 2010. So we're losing winter rainfall in particular. Mm-hmm. And this species needs winter rain to fill the swamps for about, usually about five to six months would be enough for it to have a good year. And it, that's when it eats, that's when it breathes and grows. And then they have a six months off where they go into estivation, which is like a summer torpor or dormancy. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing increasingly in these very dry years, it might be two months of water or wow. three months of water and not six or seven months of water. And this species we think probably lives for a hundred years. And so, and they don't lay many eggs. And so if we have these sequential dry years, the females are just going to have not enough energy for reproduction mm. um, and not enough food for reproduction. They might live and survive. But overall, the populations are not going to grow. So luckily, we've had captive breeding of this species for 30 years that's done at the Perth Zoo. And they've captive breed specifically for releasing animals back into the wild. We can't add more into the natural range because those areas are pretty full already. They're just tiny little areas of habitat. Mm -hmm. But they're looking for translocation sites. And they've been translocating the species successfully for 20 years, but in the wrong direction in the sense that they've been translocating them northward of Perth, which is more, uh, more uh, basically an area that's going to be drier mm-hmm. and hotter than the current range. So long answer, but um, that's the reason why climate change is a threat to this species and why we need to find, I guess, climate ready, climate sites, sites that are basically going to anticipate the continuing drying, warming trend in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. And we need to put these captive bred animals into places that they can have a good chance of reaching reproductive age and then um, hopefully having enough energy in their life cycle for reproduction. Right. So before we jump into that, that's a perfect point for you to perhaps talk about the concept of assisted colonization and how that works in a sort of, in as a non-jargony way as possible. Yeah, I know it is jargon. Um, 
but it's actually a very simple concept. It really just means it's a conservation introduction outside the known indigenous range of a species. And it's done because you have, you're of the view that you cannot mitigate the threat in the natural range. And it, it, was, a, it was an idea that, you know, people first wrote about this idea probably 30 years ago, but it really gained some traction in about 2010, paper in Science and a couple of other big papers. People really started to talk about doing it. Um, but what's, I guess, not recognised widely by particularly people outside of Australia and New Zealand is that we, we in our two countries, we have frequently put our animals outside of range to remove them from a threat. And that threat's been cats and foxes and other feral mm -hmm. predators that have arrived in New Zealand. So as, as our countries, we're quite familiar and we've, we've avoided extinctions by putting species out of range. And that's assisted colonisation. Um, but in this case, the example of the Western Swamp Turtle is that we've moved them strategically because of the threat of climate change, which is sort of what the literature got excited about 15 years ago. It was a saying that basically species are unable to shift their distributions naturally, partly because of habitat fragmentation and partly because of the pace of climate change. And so there's a lot of papers out there with decision trees about which ones you'd start with and where you'd do it and when you'd do it. Um, not so many examples of actual on-ground action. Mm -hmm. So in perhaps in the process of this, specifically the assisted colonization of the Western swamp turtle, how does it how does it work in theory? Do you do you map the kind of biodiversity of a given space? How or do you model how 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 is that done? Yeah, we model. Um the challenge for this species is it only because it only occurred in those two swamps when we when it was rediscovered, those swamps are five kilometers apart. If you're familiar with species distribution modelling, um, it's usually a statistically based method where you're correlating locations with environmental variables and then you extrapolate that model into a future climate and see where that habitat shifts. But with two data points, you can't build a model that way. Mm -hmm. So the first way I got involved with this project was we led a, I led a grant where we worked with hydrologists who could model the habitat accurately. They could predict when it filled and when it dried and what its water temperatures were. We modelled the physiology of the turtle, how it grew in these habitats, when it spread and when it didn't and how it behaved. And from that, we basically simulated, we imagined almost that any that its habitat occurred in 30,000 locations in Western Australia. We just wow. ran the same model with that, that location's climate and we ran the same model with that location's climate in the future. So it was a screening model basically looking for where Theoretically, could this species occur in the future? And that narrowed it down to a particular part of southwestern Australia near the south coast, about three or 400 kilometres away from its natural range. And then that was followed by other sorts of model. We modelled the eggs and how the eggs would hatch. We also looked at all sorts of other criteria that would be important in really introducing them there, such as other native species, predator control, land tenure. But long story short was, yes, we, we did a, a whole range of sort of desktop-based uh, and experimentally-based, I guess, projects to to build models of where we thought they could go and it wasn't easy and that was one of the major early innovations of this project was developing a new method to, to work out where this could occur this big that's an amazing testament to the strength i suppose of interdisciplinary research yeah it was it's, it's, were, it, it was a really enjoyable project we could we called it the turtle happiness index you know where would it be it's, it's, well, it's the goldilocks looking for that sort of just right site and you can, and the beauty of a mechanistic model is you can drive it with novel forces, novel climates, novel rainfall, and see how your answer varies. So it's really, it's really powerful. Once you have this model, you can do an awful lot with it. 
Yeah, that's incredible. So I wanted to ask, um, especially with sort of the intro- introduction of um, a non non native species to a given environment, through the models that you've done, are there any potential side effects that might not be viewed positively? And are, th- are there any serendipitous effects that you could have you could pull out and p- potentially we could see happening in the future with the introduction of these turtles to that area? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And that's one of the main concerns about assisted colonization is the perverse outcomes that could occur or collateral mm-hmm. impacts, they call it. Um, and we've thought about, about that very carefully too. And surprisingly, we have modeled it as well with our <laughs> ecological network theories and food webs. Um, so we know exactly, well, we, we think we know what this species eats pretty accurately. Um, it's actually, luckily, it's an invertebrate it, it basically doesn't eat anything very large. It's got a small mouth and they've tried to make it eat fish and they've tried to make it eat crustaceans and it can't. So the biggest thing it eats is a tadpole and generally it survives on macroinvertebrates, insects and tadpoles. Um, and so that's good because none of those things are threatened in the ecosystems that we're introducing it to. There are some threatened fish and if we had introduced the other turtle, the, the common long-necked turtle, or even an invasive turtle, because some of the world's invasive turtles are arriving in WA as well, that could have a very serious impact on that ecosystem. And we've actually modelled what the red-eared slider, which is one of the world's top 100 invaders. We've shown very different predictions for how a swamp tortoise would perturb the ecosystem versus a, a red-eared slider. So, yeah, we've thought about that, and we're getting even better information now on their diets. One of my PhD students is using DNA, looking at fecal DNA barcoding of of what they're eating as well. So we're now pretty confident that they can't eat some of the threatened things in these systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're also going to be pretty slow to grow a large population with the fecundity they have. They only lay sort of three or four eggs and maybe every couple of years. So it's not going to be a sudden explosion of western swamp turtles um, in that area. So that's also quite reassuring. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, how does how does the maintenance of a project like this happen then? Because as you said, you know, if they can live for up to 100 years, will you be tending to them in, in old age and looking after no, them as you go? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they, are, they are a hard species to study in the sense you have to be very patient um, to get your answers. So we've so far only been reducing, releasing captive bred juveniles that are roughly two or three or four years of age and they'll take up to 10 years to reach reproductive age and possibly a little, a little bit longer in a colder climate mm-hmm. and then yeah to actually understand if that population is going to be successful we'd need probably another decade or two of understanding reproductive rates to put it all into a into a good model so no, yeah. I don't think I'll be around but um I actually studied a, another very long-lived reptile in New Zealand before this the tuatara which also has about a hundred year life cycle. And I had to wait a couple of years to get my first results just from hatching out their eggs. So I sort of um, built a rod from my own back by working on these slow breeding, long lived species. But luckily, um, if you're good at modeling and you know you've got confidence in your parameters, you can, you can do a fairly, you can look at the future with some degree of confidence. Remarkable. So this paper comes as a sort of section of a wider project. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about what that project is, what what's the stated aims of that project? Yeah, this, so this paper, I need to acknowledge the wonderful uh, honours student, Siobhan Paget, who's our lead author and the sort of senior author of this one. Um, it's if We've done four experimental releases of the Western Swamp Tortoise into areas 
um, in that sort of 300 kilometre or so south of the known range, which is areas that are wetter and colder and cooler. Oh, sorry, sorry, that's the same thing, colder and cooler. <laughs> um, and we've done it with um, our first trial was quite successful. We compared a northern site, which is where they'd been translocating um, for 20 or sort of 10 years or so, but in that sort of slightly wrong direction. And we tried two sites in the south and we got a good result in one of the southern sites and a poor result in the other. Mm. And strangely, in the second trial, which is the one this study's about, we went back to the site in the south that didn't get a good result the first time, partly because managers were more interested in establishing them there than the other site. Um, so we were mm -hmm. partly being guided by the likelihood of, um, I guess, the local region adopting it as a species. Um, and we partly thought, well, it was one year of result. We might not get the same result again. So we went back to the second site. So, and we've now subsequently, for, to go further forward, we've abandoned the site that we studied in this paper and we've now back to the original successful site and that's going really well. There's, there's two, two further trials have happened, which are mostly being worked on by a PhD student of mine. But yeah, back to this paper, what was nice about it was we did a release into the natural range as well. So we had these zoo bred animals we had a, a sort of a control group put into their home range and a, a group sent north and a group sent south. So overall about, I think, 400 or so kilometres of latitudinal range, which is a really big span. West Australia is in an enormous state and in a large country. So we have, we have pretty big landscapes to traverse when we do these sorts of things. So we knew that the climates were different and we really wanted to understand what the cost of being released into a colder climate might be. We thought it's quite possible that animals would be too cold to make the most of that wetter climate and that longer growing period. And so we put tags on their shells, which we'd never used before. So we bought these from a, a British company called Cephas. Um, they make tags for marine studies mostly, but it was a tag that we calibrated to work for a very shallow diving species. So it detected pressure changes, temperature and whether or not the animal was wet or dry. So that told us if it had come out to bask or if it was in the water. Wow. And so my students challenged Siobhan, she, she was receiving, we had these tags only ran for about five weeks because they were recording every second. And she received, she had enormous millions of data points per, per animal. And she had to do some very fancy statistical modeling <laughs> to interpret what those numbers all meant and to turn them into, um, I guess, explanations about performance. Mm -hmm. So the long story is that we discovered um, that they didn't really um, have show much plasticity in behaviour and they didn't go out and bask more in the south, which is what they, we hoped they'd do. We thought if they'd shown more terrestrial activity to get in the sun, they'd probably warm up, store heat and be able to forage quite well and grow. But they mm -hmm. seemed to show different behaviours where they more or less just rested in the cooler months in the south and didn't forage and that obviously doesn't translate to growth. So we found quite poor growth again in that southern site like we did the first time. So that basically gave us cause to conclude that that site wasn't worth continuing and we've gone back to the original site that worked well. Yeah, amazing. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about assisted colonisation and about specific to the novelty of this study, um, where do you see the novelty lies in this study? Is it the ability to sort of only have a very minute amount of data points and then be able to extrapolate it with hydro 
was it hydrologists and yeah eco hydrologists that's correct yes amazing amazing yeah yeah that was novel um and we were pretty proud of that modeling approach but i think the whole thing is novel because as i alluded to we don't have a lot of examples of projects trialing assisted colonization in the world Mm -hmm. certainly not ones that are published there might be some underway that I, I haven't heard about but I do speak to journalists quite frequently who are always looking for examples and they invariably find this one um, mm-hmm. and I'll probably get sick of this one eventually <laughs> but um, <laughs> we have been going for 15 years or so now and yeah we are learning by doing which is a great way to go and I think we're learning with fairly limited risk to the recipient environment because I think we have confidence that we could undo any mistakes potentially where we we could bring animals back if we had to and we have actually returned some animals to the zoo because that was part of our our translocation approval was a trial and that meant that at the end of the trial animals went back into captivity mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's novel in every element frank i can't really think of anything that isn't <laughs> that isn't novel but, um but are we i think um one of the advantages we have is that we're doing translocations across these big geographic spaces but it's one state and one jurisdiction so the decisions and the approvals are really made by one recovery team working with mm-hmm. one government organization who does who basically makes the the decision to go ahead so it's not perhaps as complex as trying to sift a species across a, a state border or a across a, into another country so um that's probably one of the to be really to be honest it's one of the reasons why we've been able to do trials perhaps is more readily than other organisations that might want to do something like this. Looking towards the future, um, where do you think the research should be directed towards next? Are there any other species that you're looking at for, you know, with regards to assisted colonisation? Um, yeah, what what changes do you hope your work will precipitate? Yeah, I, I guess I'm looking forward to seeing others doing the same sort of thing, especially in situations where the decision is quite of the that the, the likelihood of extinction is quite high that's usually one of the most, mm-hmm. one of the reasons you would do it is that you've got high confidence that extinction is imminent and there are also optimal there's also we've also done some work with other modelers looking at when you'd make that decision in an optimal way there's always mm-hmm. going to be a moment when it's too late and perhaps a moment when it's too early so we've done some work on alpine species in eastern australia looking at frogs that are in high altitude areas and more or less demonstrated that they might only survive in Tasmania, which is across a big body of water. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of Australia's um, threatened species occur on on mountaintops or or sky islands. And so um, many of them are threatened by other things as well, but they're certainly, if they're confined to one location on a mountaintop, then they'll probably be high on our priorities for thinking about a relocation or if not, potentially having an insurance population and captive a captive population so that that decision can be made later. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of talk about even, you know, these, these we don't have a lot of southern land masses in the southern half of the world as well, so there's not much south of the south coast of West Australia apart from <laughs> Antarctica and some southern Antarctic islands, so we're going to be quite stuck for a lot of, um, a lot of our alpine-adapted fauna and flora in Australia and you know, there's, there's people have even discussed New Zealand as a potential location for Australian species, and that's a crazy idea. Australia's New Zealand's got enough of problematic Australian species like brush-tailed possums, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, these are the sorts of difficult decisions ahead. Yeah, um, remarkable. Yeah. So, 
Um, and forgive me, as a layperson, um, if this is an incredibly obvious, there's an obvious answer to this question, but perhaps to the naysayers who might say, well, is it safe to assume that extinction at this point is purely anthropogenic? And, you know, I can just, I'm just sort of putting my, my feet into someone else's shoes and thinking perhaps someone who doesn't like the idea about introducing non-native species to um, different environments and fields. You know, you always get people who are sort of like, oh, well, you know, it's natural selection. Let these animals just, yeah. you know, die out. Is it is it safe to assume that it's purely anthropogenic or are there in instances where you would think where the model, you wouldn't want to apply that model to a specific endangered animal? Yeah, it, it's pretty hard to think of any example that you wouldn't see some anthropogenic cause of its, it being mm -hmm. threatened these days. So yes, I, I suspect you could be right that if if you thought it was it was it was doomed anyway, and, um, and perhaps culturally it wouldn't be appropriate to try and save it. Maybe the, the local people have a have a view about na letting natural causes take effect. You might you might support that, mm -hmm. but but in all, nearly all cases we're going to be able to attribute the cause to humans, and climate change is clearly our our fault. Um, yeah, so I think. I can't quite remember what your question was. Can you rephrase the? It was just basically um, what you would sort of say to the naysayers. I suppose it brings me into yeah, the question really. I wanted to ask, which was why why should the average person care about the work that's being done here? You know, I, I'm, I'm, it sounds rude to me saying it because I do. But I'm saying <laughs> if if someone came up to you in, a, in the street or in an interview and said, "Why should I care about the assisted colonization of?" the Western yeah. Australian swamp turtle, you know, what would you say, or perhaps to a policymaker who's, who wants to know why this is so critical? Yeah, well, I think this one's important because it is a global demonstration case of, of an option we could consider doing. And I, you, you know, it's hard to get that over that inertia to start trials. And so I think this should hopefully encourage others to see there is a path forward to getting mm -hmm. approval for this sort of thing. Um, but then, you know, there's also just the intrinsic specialness of certain species, and this is one of them. It's on its own evolutionary limits. Pseudamajura is its genus. It's the only species in that genus. It's um, only known from Miocene fossils in Queensland. It's um, globally recognised as one of the world's most distinctive um, and highly, you know, val valued species zoologically. It's in the top 100. Prince, wow. Prince Philip visited the site in the in the 1980s, I think, and so you know royalties visited, and um, <laughs> you know it's well, it's a pretty famous species if you're into herpetology, which is reptiles and amphibians. So, mm -hmm. of course, most people in that field will care. Um, it's a it's got a weird life history. You know, it digs it digs its neck digs its nest with its front legs, not its back legs. You know, so all sorts of reasons. It's a zoological curiosity and and special for mm -hmm. those reasons. But yeah, for your average member of the public. Who don't really understand um, perhaps what we've got to lose it is a harder argument and there are just going to be so many species that need attention um, and we'll probably be starting with critically endangered ones but then ultimately we'll probably be making decisions that some are just not going to um not it's not a good investment um, mm -hmm. or there may be no options if like as i suggested you know there may be no southern land mass to move something to um, yeah but I think people do need to wake up and realise that we don't have many ecosystems that are unaltered or don't have threat, don't have novel species in them. We do have a lot of novel ecosystems out there. 
And as I said, in Australia and New Zealand, we're fairly comfortable with creating novel ecosystems and putting our species out of the way of predators, and we've saved species um, by doing so. So, yeah, while it would be lovely to have patches of wilderness everywhere that are much as they evolving as they, um, without our interference, I don't think that's realistic in many places anymore. Well, power to you guys, because it's it's really great work that you're doing. Um, so just before we wrap up, I know you've given a shout out to one of your PhD students already, but is there anyone else, scientist or not scientist, you'd like to shout out? Very much. Yeah, um, Gerald Cookling is uh, the champion of this species. He's been working on them for I think 35 years. Um, he was he was deliberately sort of headhunted at a conference for his his understanding of reproductive biology of turtles at the time they couldn't do captive breeding of this species and Gerald worked out how to wow. do that and he's been the champion of their conservation ever since so he's always a collaborator of mine he works for the, D the government West Australian government conservation department right now and he's usually the co-supervisor of students but this work has involved yeah several PhD and honours students in my group and a lot of collaborators the World Wildlife Fund in Australia are funding us right now, um, and we've had we've got great funding from a community group called the Friends of the Western Swamp Tortoise. But it's all very small money, um, and luckily now the Australian government has put it on their 110 top species for recovery in the next decade. So there's probably some new opportunities to get some Commonwealth support as well. Fantastic, because it's not very cheap, unfortunately, to do a really good job of a research experiment like this, which needs a lot of attention and monitoring, mm. um, a lot of field work. Now usually choose up your your, grad, your budget quite quickly yeah absolutely all right so um where can people follow your you know the the progression of this project is there somewhere where i can direct our listeners to so they can keep up to date yeah that's a good question we have had a website in the past that we don't we don't manage anymore so yes um i don't have a great suggestion <laughs> there except to <laughs> keep um, I was going to say Twitter, but I think Twitter changed the name a few days ago, so I'm not even sure if, if Twitter's a good place to recommend. But um, my current PhD student, Bethany Nordstrom, um, has written some beautiful pieces in some journalism, uh, in some journals lately, and we've also, we've had exposure on the New York Times Amazing. last year, um, World Wildlife Fund are promoting what we're doing here. So I don't think it's very hard to find this example if you just put Western Swamp in Google, you'll, you'll, you'll get some hits. But you're right, it would be nice to have a, have a website um, to show all the pieces of the puzzle somewhere to people who are interested. Well, Twitter would have been good, but who knows? By the time this episode goes out, Twitter might have just burned to the ground. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> and I've only just learned to tweet. Well, no, I'm not a great tweeter because I, I partly um, I don't do a lot of it because of my other role in government. But um, yeah, I probably should do more. But great to have the opportunity to talk to you about it and hopefully get some people in the, the northern hemisphere who i imagine are more likely to be the listeners of your podcast absolutely so just as we wrap up i want to let everyone know that links to the paper and the plain language summary will be available in the description and i'd just like to really thank nikki for this fascinating podcast pleasure frank thanks thanks for inviting me <laughs>